0: Good morning, Four Corners Church. I hope that you come this morning as the prophet Malachi says, leaping like calves from the stall, as you read that, as we read that earlier. That is the disposition of the heart of every Christian, everyone who has come to know the Son of Righteousness, who has come to know and been united to this. Messiah, this promised Christ. I pray that you and your families during this month of Advent are adoring and delighting in our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. What a special time of year this is. We adore and delight in Jesus every day of the year as Christians who've been united to Him, who have His Spirit in us. But this is a special time of year where we focus specifically on His coming and we consider His future coming. Both comings in view, as you heard Mark read earlier. And This morning, what we are doing now, as we come to God's Word, as we come to preaching, is we are adoring and delighting in our Savior corporately, as we come underneath His Word. And as we come to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. So, that's going to be our text this morning. <clears throat> Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. I spoke at a, uh, a, a school graduation a couple of years ago, and one of the things I, I said when I got up and started to speak was um, I told them that I was a preacher, and as a preacher, I have a text. And I told them to beware of any preacher who does not have a text. And so here we are with a text. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 to 5. Last week we finished the first major section of Romans. (coughs) And that goes, excuse me, that goes from chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to the end of chapter 4. That is the first major section. And we saw that within that larger section there are a number of smaller sections, but that is kind of part one of Romans. Today we come to the second major section, and this section takes us from the beginning of chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 8. In fact, the themes that we find at the beginning of chapter 5 are repeated and reiterated and expanded upon at the end of chapter 8. And so if you look at the text of Romans, it's very interesting that as you go into chapter 5, and then as you look at the end of chapter 8, you're getting brackets, really, around this chunk of text. And by the way, let me just say this. When we get the structure of a book in view, it helps very much in our understanding of the details of that book. And so as we come now to chapter Five, we recognize that what we're going to be looking at specifically under the banner of the gospel, which is Paul's concern in Romans. Remember chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is the big idea. Romans is about the gospel. But in Paul's articulation of the gospel, we have various facets. And one of those facets, or a set of those facets, We come to now in chapters five to eight. The title for the sermon this morning is The Results of Right Standing. We've been discussing for some time now justification by faith. How is it that we come to be right with God or to have right standing before God? And we found that that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And over the last several chapters, that has been Paul's focus justification by faith. And we saw that last week. I, I tried to summarize everything in those first four chapters under uh, several different headings. And so we saw the need as we looked up to chapter 3, verse 18 the great need of human beings that we are sinners under condemnation. We need a savior. And then we saw the gift. That as we went into chapter 3, verse 21 and following, which we find over here on the side of the wall on this poster, we see the great gift of Jesus Christ, the grace of God in Jesus Christ for those who believe. And so we saw the gift, the the gift that matches abundantly, super abundantly, as Paul will go on to say later, matches the need. So a gift that takes care of the need. And then as we entered into chapter 4 of Romans, we saw the picture. Abraham represents the picture of all that Paul has been saying, both in terms of how he was saved by faith, and in terms of the outworking of that faith, the nature of it, the way that it uh, it works, and and what it looks like. We found that in chapter 4. And then last week, I took those last few verses, and what I said is that the picture gets applied to us in those last few verses of chapter 4. So we see the need, the gift, the picture, and then the application of that picture to those of us who now look back to the finished work of Christ. And when we come to the very beginning of chapter 5, we read these words. Go ahead and look at your Bibles Therefore, always an important word when we talk about interpretation. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, dot, dot, dot. This tells us that we are now going to see the results or the consequences of that justification. Or to say it another way, the results of our right standing. And the results that Paul covers in the first five verses can be grouped into two categories. And these are going to be our two points for this morning as we look at the results of right standing. Can be grouped into two categories. If you guys can go ahead and put those up for me. Thank you. So here they are. First, our relationship. And second, our rejoicing. Now let me just pause here before we go further, read our text, pray, and get into it. Let me just say this. These are two perfect themes to consider as we approach Christmas. You know, every year for the last several years, we've, we've taken a, a bit of a hiatus from our, our series. I've said this a few times now. We've taken a hiatus from our series, uh, whatever we're in, and we go and look at a Christmas passage but I felt compelled as we are here going through this particular part of Romans that there is absolutely, it would be absurd to leave this to go anywhere else, really. And we see here a confirmation of that as we consider our relationship and our rejoicing. What this means is today we get to consider two of the biggest words or concepts associated with Christmas, peace And joy. So we get much greater clarity, I think, about what in the world it is that we are celebrating this month. And that we will celebrate on December 25th. So if you would go ahead and stand with me now for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And let me just say before I read, uh, you could treat verses 1 to 11 all together as one unit, but I've decided to take each of these uh, chunks and treat them separately. So chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. This is God's Word. It is perfect and profitable for His people. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Let's ask Him to be with us. Let's praise Him. Let's thank Him for His word. Heavenly Father, how often we pray without our minds, praying without our hearts, without confidence, that as our loving and omnipotent Father, you hear us and you can act on our behalf. Father, we come into your presence now. We come boldly to the throne of grace, seeking help for this time of need, this time of need to preach clearly and to listen well. This time of need, Lord, as we are hearing the very words of life, this wonderful book of Romans here on display for us to chew upon, to meditate on, to drink deeply from. God, what gifts, what privileges, what blessings to even be here in this very moment. And so God, we give you thanks. We ask that our time this morning in your word would be fruitful, that you would use it To bring glory to Yourself as You grow us, God. As You grow us in the likeness of Jesus. We thank You for Your many graces which we each can identify in our lives. We know You, God. We have affections for You. We have experiences in our past and in the present of Your particular providence in our own situations in life, we experience a love for Your Word and a desire to be with Your people, which has made this year so difficult, Lord, as we have been apart more in so many ways than before, Lord. It's been challenging because as Your people, we love each other. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, as First John tells us so emphatically, and Lord, we... Just thank you we get to be together this morning. We pray for our worship service as it continues. We pray for the services of other churches in our area. We ask that your people in Noonan today would delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would celebrate him as we move towards Christmas. And that this town would feel the power of that. That those who do not know you, God, would, would see in us who do know you such great pleasure in Jesus. And God, we ask that this morning would contribute to that sense of, of knowing you, to that growth in you, and to that witness to a world that needs you. God, be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come first this morning, as we think about the results of right standing, we come first to our relationship, our relationship. Look with me again in more detail at verse 1 down to the middle of verse 2. We're going to stop there. Verse 1 down to the middle of verse 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, which I've already read, and here we go. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Well, that's a mouthful. A mouthful of richness. A mouthful of rich truth. But the most obvious feature of all of this is the repetition of this prepositional phrase, through Christ. We get it here, repeated. Verse 1, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through Him. And what we find as we go further into chapter 5 is that this sort of language just continues. You know, sometimes we get the main ideas as they're moving along in the text, but then we get the, the skeletal structure or some of these repeated themes that, as it were, push the text together and give it one, uh, make it coherent, give it, make it one whole. We find this kind of through Christ language throughout. So let me just give you some of the instances. Verse 9, by his blood and by him. Verse 10, by the death of his son and by his life. Verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through whom? Verse 15, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 17, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 19, by the one man's obedience. Verse 21, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's amazing. This is Christocentric language at its best. Everything Paul is saying, everything that he is articulating about what human beings have with regard to salvation is, as you can clearly see, centered on Christ. Just as the last section emphasized Jesus as the object of our faith, that we have faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection as we saw last week, the emphasis as we look to Jesus. What are we looking to? You know, it strikes me as as, uh, strange sometimes that the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the gospel of Christ delivered up to be crucified and raised has been replaced in evangelical talk by this vague sense of personal relationship with Jesus. We're going to see very clearly this morning that relationship, which is the first point, is so part and parcel, so much a part of what it is to be a Christian. But we must never replace the gospel, Christ crucified and raised, with some vague notion of relationality with Jesus as the gospel. The gospel is what God has done in Christ in history. 1 Corinthians 15, this is what I have delivered to you. Christ died, Christ rose. So we see that this is the object of our faith. This Jesus Christ in history who died and who rose again. Well, that was the last section, Christocentric. And now this section tells us that all that we are and all that we possess as Christians is likewise mediated through Jesus Christ. You're thinking, well, of course, we're in a Christian church. But how often it is the case that talk of God is void of Christ? Talk of God must always have at its center His Christ, his anointed one, Psalm 2. Everything in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ, as we saw at the very beginning of Romans, chapter 1, verse 4, for the sake of his name. Why is Paul writing Romans? Why does he want to visit Rome? Why does he want to go to Spain? Why does he want to encourage the believers in Rome and receive encouragement from them? For the sake of Christ's glory. For the sake of Christ's name. This is why we have Christmas. Let me say that again. This is why we have Christmas. Don't let... This Christmas. Your practices and traditions overshadow this Christ. Now, I'm not going to get into details there. That would be to meddle and micromanage. Every parent has to make decisions about how they're going to talk about Christmas and the traditions and practices of Christmas. When they have children. And that's not an easy question. It is challenging. And you can go online. And you can listen to what different. uh, Well known pastors have done with their own children. and, And you can talk with other people. And see. But whatever you do. Whatever songs you sing and movies you watch and traditions you participate in, whatever you do on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, whatever you're doing this afternoon and next Saturday, whatever it is, don't let this Christ be covered up. He is the only reason there is a universe. And He's certainly the only reason we have this season of peace and joy. So now that we've got that clearly in view, as we see the skeletal structure of Christocentric language all throughout, now that we've got that in view, let's look at the main point Paul is driving at here. Back to our idea of relationship. One result of our justification of our right standing is our relationship. That now we, through Christ, have a relationship with God. We say that too quickly a relationship with God. God. And this relationship gets defined here in two ways. Peace and access. So let's look at each of those. This relationship that we have as a result of our right standing, as a result of our justification by faith, here, as Paul presents it, has two aspects. First, peace. Peace. And second, access. So first, peace. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Or the second part of verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we hear the word peace, our mind may first go to peace within ourselves. Especially if you attend to be an anxious person, you may hear the word peace and the first thing that comes to your mind is peace of mind. Peace in your soul, because it's rumbling a lot, a lot of waves going on, and you think peace in my soul, calmness to all this stress. And while this is certainly a biblical category, that's not what's in view here. Philippians 4 has a lot to say about that, many other passages But that's not what is in view here. Probably the second place we go is peace between people. And of course, this is also a biblical category. But once again, not the focus here. The focus here is simply put on reconciliation with God. Being reconciled with God. Being in a state of peace with God. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. Peace with God. Reconciliation with God. This concept makes no sense. Listen to this. Makes no sense without chapters 1 to 3. So I want you, I want you to understand it's been heavy, Chapters 1 to 3 were heavy upon us, but it is so that we might understand all the significance of something like this, peace with God. makes no sense unless we first understand sin and wrath. And so all these churches that talk of peace with God without sin and wrath and hell, peace Loses all of its meaning. It's evaporated of all of its content. It becomes this worldly, ephemeral notion of nothing, not this weighty, grandiose concept that Paul brings here peace with God. Peace with God doesn't mean anything until we realize that before being justified, we were enemies of God. Whoa! I was an enemy of God, and now I have peace with God? Then you feel the weight of it. Romans 5.10. We were enemies of God. As the New City Catechism says so clearly, God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them both in this life and in the life to come. Listen to the warlike language of hostility between God and the sinner in Psalm 7, 11 to 13. This is the reality. This This is the truth of the relationship between God and sinful humanity. Psalm 7, 11 to 13 God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Right now, God feels indignation. Whatever it is we understand about feels with respect to God, nonetheless, it's what the text says. He feels indignation today. But it goes on. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. This doesn't sound like the God of Christmas. He will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. That's God's disposition to the sinful world. One of the great fundamental results of justification by faith is that we are put at peace with this weapon-bearing God. We are put at peace with this God of fiery wrath. That's amazing. This is an objective truth that is meant to assure us regardless of our feelings. Listen, Christian, if you are a Christian, you are at peace with this God. Listen to this quote from John MacArthur. The person who is justified by faith in Christ is at peace with God. Regardless of how he may feel about it at any given moment. Through his trust in Jesus Christ... A sinner's war with God is ended for all eternity. That's amazing. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have affections for the Lord Jesus, you've been converted, you may not feel very saved today. Today may not be going along very well for you internally. All kinds of reasons, right? But here's the truth. The truth is, you are right with God. You are at peace with God. He is no longer at war with you as a sinner. Still a sinner. We still sin. The Bible describes us as saints. We have been reconciled to God through Christ. Don't let your feelings drive you. Especially some of us... uh, Struggle more with that than others. Your feelings, you know, you're up and down, roller coaster in the Christian life. Let God's truth be your anchor. That's what Paul says when he talks about the helmet of the hope of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Be protected through God's truth, His unchanging truth. The second word used to define this relationship is access. So we're looking at our relationship as a result of justification. We've seen peace, and now we see access. Look at verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This word that Paul uses occurs two other times in the New Testament, and both are in Ephesians. Let me read them to you, Ephesians 2.18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then in chapter 3, verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Access to God as Father. Where the law... And the temple was meant to separate the sinner from God. It was meant to bring about a kind of anticipation of Christ's sacrifice. In that it drew people to God through the sacrificial system. On a concrete lived level, it was a separator. The temple had these various parts to it. The tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. You were not allowed to go in there. The law And the temple, in this respect, served to separate. It it served to set apart God as holy and man as unholy. But where the law and the temple separated, Christ has brought us near. We approach God as Father. We come boldly, the Bible says, into His presence. Now, notice this. Boldly doesn't mean flippantly. We don't treat God flippantly, but we come to him boldly with reverence, fearing the Lord, but calling him Abba. The picture is what we find in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. Listen to what the author there says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you in need this morning? We all are in need all the time. Every hour I need thee. That song. Every hour we need God. And guess what? For those who are in need, we have access to God in his grace. Always. And by the way, back to our old point, you don't just have access when you feel like you have access. You don't just have access to God when you feel really chipper and awake in the morning with your Bible and your cup of Joe, and your eyes are wide open and it's sunny outside. You might feel it then, but when it's dark and dreary and you're exhausted and you're sick and you're depressed and frustrated, you have access. You have access to this God of grace. Paul says here that this is a place, a situation in which we stand. We cannot be moved. This is ours in Christ. It is not shaky, but we stand in grace. This is the language of firmness. This is the language. Of perpetuity, this goes on and on and on. It is not to be taken away. If we are in Christ, we stand in the grace of God. All the gracious blessings of salvation that we read about in Ephesians 1, chapter 1 of Ephesians, from verse 3 all the way to to 14, is one sentence. It's, It's this amazing, just, pancake pile of spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Go and read that. It's just an amazing, one of, the, one of the best passages in the New Testament. All of that rolled up for us in Christ. All the power of heaven is working for our good, and God hears our prayers. This is objective truth. It is yours in Christ, whether you feel it today or not. And so we ought to have confidence in it. And this idea of confidence brings us to the next result of right standing, and that is our rejoicing. So we're looking at the results of our justification by faith, and first we see our relationship with God through Christ. We have peace, we have access, and now we see Our rejoicing, another result of our justification. Look at the middle of verse 2, down through verse 5. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The leading verb here is rejoice. That's the big idea. It's the leading verb of all that follows. Rejoice, which is actually the word for boasting, or glorying in something. So if you read the NIV, they use the word boast. Here in the ESV, we get the word rejoice. Boasting is the way the word is typically translated, to boast or to glory. Now we know from what we've already seen that boasting is generally no good. Boasting is generally characterized as a bad thing, not a virtue but a vice. But it is usually considered in terms of boasting in ourselves. And so here we get the the paradox that that the gospel flattens boasting in one sense and exalts boasting in another sense, as we saw at the end of chapter 3, chapter 3 verse 27, where boasting is excluded through the gospel. So justification by faith, the core of the gospel, flattens, squishes, does away with human boasting. But it results in boasting in the Lord. And that's what we find here, glorying or boasting in God. In the Greek Old Testament, this word frequently carries the idea of exultation or joy, that is being joyfully confident of something. And that's the reason for the translation here in the ESV. Uh, rejoice is this is really what's going on here, is this exultation taking hold of God with confidence to boast in or glory in the Lord. And the focus of this joyful confidence, this boasting, this rejoicing is one word hope. We love this word. The Christian loves this word, hope. We now have something to boast or rejoice about, and it is our hope. And here Paul describes this hope in three ways. So you can write these down if you would like. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Paul's description of this hope in three ways. First, it is directed to God's glory. Second, it comes through suffering. And finally, it does not disappoint. So, first, we see that this hope is directed to God's glory. Verse two, we rejoice in hope. Hope of what? Hope of the glory of God. It's interesting that that's what he puts here, right? Could say. Hope of a, a perfect world of, of uh, bliss with, uh, with no more death, crying tears. You could have gone to Revelation 21, 22, kind of looked at that. We've got that in the Bible. Could have said uh, a new heaven and a new earth. Could have said uh, anything, a number of things associated with our future hope. But he gets to the very heart of the matter when he says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. One day, the earth Will be filled with the glory of God. Right now, there's much dishonoring of God in the world, in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own church, in every church. Dishonoring of the Lord. But one day, the glory, the honor of God will fill the earth forever. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of. Of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is there any part of the sea not covered by waters? No. It's in the very definition of sea to be water. And it will be one day in the very definition of the new earth to be covered with the glory of God. There will be no need of the sun. We are told In Revelation, Christ will return in all of his risen, exalted, enthroned glory. Mark chapter 13, verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Hasten the day. Hasten the day. Now, if we just, if we only got to see. Just think about this for a moment. What I just described. If we only got to see or experience that glory, it would be amazing enough. It would be enough to just get to take that in. But what the Bible teaches us, what the gospel tells us, is that we will share in that glory as transformed, glorified saints of Christ. That's amazing. The glory of God, the infinite, eternal God, and His matchless Christ. We will be partakers of that glory in our glorified state, reflecting His glory made like Christ. So 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are even now being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're experiencing that now as we are sanctified. And what will this culminate in? 1 John 3 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, oh, it has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The glory of Christ will be immediately contagious to the saints. We'll see him. We'll have it like that. We will be glorified with him. We will reign with him. We will judge angels absolutely unfathomable. Ask me what that means, I don't know. But it's amazing, and it's true, and it's what we will do. And as Paul will tell us later in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, this is certain. It is part of an unbreakable chain that comes with our justification, which itself goes back to our predestination. It is so unfortunate that you can go through church for years and years and years and hear nothing about predestination. And some people are just so afraid of this idea of predestination. It is so precious to a Christian. Let no one tell you those things don't really matter. Let's just focus on the gospel. Well, tell that to Paul in Romans chapter 8. We're at the very center of the gospel of justification by faith. We got this moving back and moving forward justification must be understood in terms of what precedes it and in terms of what comes after it. And here's what Paul says. Those whom he predestined, Ephesians 1, in Christ before the foundation of the earth, by grace according to the counsel of his will, period. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Guess what? It's already done. It's a done deal. It's sealed. Your glorification is so certain if you are a Christian because it's already been done, in a sense. It's coming. It's certain. And it is meant to bring us great joy at Christmas time and every time. Second, this hope comes through suffering. So first, we see that this hope is directed to God's glory. That's what we're hoping in. Now we see that it comes through suffering. Verses 3 to 4. Look at those verses. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice in sufferings. Those don't really tend to go together in a sentence. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, And character produces hope. I think this is probably one of the most comforting set of verses for the everyday real lived life of the Christian. It tells us that our sufferings, our being pressed down, which is the basic meaning of the word, being pressed down like grapes or olives to make oil or wine pressed down, our being pressed down, our sufferings are not in vain. They're not just obstacles to our fulfillment. They're not obstacles to our comforts and our pleasures. They're not obstacles to our good. It tells us that we should not, listen to this Christian, we should not simply hunker down and get through our trials. We've all felt that if we're Christians, right? I gotta just get through this. You just gotta bear it and just get through it and there's light on the other side. Maybe. We should not simply hunker down with this mindset and get through our trials, but rather we should rejoice In our trial. Do you see how radical this is? This is not mere getting through. This is delighting in and rejoicing in. What's going on? This seems like crazy advice. It is so counter-cultural. It is so contrary to the teaching of the world. It is so absolutely contrary to the teaching of. The so-called gospel called prosperity gospel. We rejoice in these. And in some ways, let me say it this way. I don't don't know if you've ever had this experience. Christmas is one of those times where you kind of feel, and maybe you've experienced this. I've experienced this before, so I hope I'm not alone in this. (laughs) But, you know, you're going through Christmas. Everything's supposed to be happy, and, you know, it's supposed to be a good time, and and maybe things aren't going so well. Maybe you've got something significant Going on in your life that is just not, not good. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's painful. And you're like, no, not at Christmas time. I mean, this would be this would be all right in September or February. Or, or maybe like late spring, but but not Christmas time. I mean, this is supposed to be happy. This is supposed to be just filled with cheer. And I don't have a lot of cheer. What is going on? Maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt that way, but. I think that we have the temptation to feel this way. And I think what this text is implying is this. What better time to be going through a trial than at Christmas? Think about that. So if you're you're going through a trial this Christmas, and as Christmas approaches, you're eat up thinking, man, so disappointing, this is a drag. I mean, it's Christmas time. And what God's Word is saying to you is, in a sense, there's no better time to celebrate Christmas than to be going through sufferings and trials in which you're rejoicing. What better way to celebrate the truth of Christmas? How can this be? Rejoicing in sufferings. We are those waiting on future glory where there will be no more suffering. I mean, our very hope of the glory of God filling the earth and us being transformed into His likeness entails a lack of suffering. There will come a time when that glory comes where there will be zero, zero, zero suffering forever. Zero. And so how is it, how is it that we are waiting on this future glory where there will be no more suffering, and we're now rejoicing in the very thing that we're looking forward to being rid of? Answer, because the sufferings themselves result in hope of that future glory. It's it's a real thing. It's out there for you, Christian. It's going to happen. But your experience of that in your own Mind and heart. Your subjective taking hold of that objective reality is sometimes thwarted by all kinds of things going on in your life and in your heart. What we're told here is that our sufferings themselves result in this subjective hope being grown. Here's the logic. Because we have been justified by faith, We have a certain fixed hope. And as we move towards that hope, through our sufferings, we grow in our endurance. And as our endurance grows, the proof of our Christian identity shows forth. Our tested character, the tested genuineness of our faith shows forth. And out of this chain of events, we are further solidified in our hope. That's how it works. That's how it plays out. And any Christian who has ever had a trial, all of us, knows exactly what I mean. Knows exactly what this text is talking about. It doesn't even need to be explained. You just know it because you've lived it if you're a Christian. And some of us, some of you more so than others. The depth of suffering that this life can bring. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 says something similar. Count it all joy. Same idea. Not hunker down and get through it. Count it joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, see how general it is? Just As a Christian, all the trials we experience are are caught in the middle of this spiritual warfare. They're caught in the middle of sort of the already and not yet, the old age and the age to come. Trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, patience, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Maybe you've met those people whose lives really have a lot of hardships, and they just seem to be so content. You look at your life, and you really don't have very many hardships, but you're not content. you just kind of tossed around, and every little thing gets you down, and you just feel very upset often. And you look at this person, you're like, I mean that person is suffering so grievously and they're content and they have joy. What in the world is going on? This is what's going on. Complete lacking in nothing. My mom used to tell me and you probably heard this many times when you pr- be careful praying for patience. You pray for patience? This is what you get. Now she's just kidding because obviously we want patience and we are to rejoice in this. This is what makes us complete. 1 Peter 1, to 6-7, same idea. Look, now we have Peter, James, and Paul. Same idea. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. Grieved, that's heavy. Grieved by various trials. Once again, it's, it's, it's a lot of different things. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I hope you'll see your trials this Christmas differently now because you have seen what God says about them. Thirdly, and finally this morning, as we think about our rejoicing, the joy that we have in our hope We see that this is a hope that does not disappoint. Look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This hope will not put us to shame. Those who hope in God, will not be put to shame. They will not be disappointed on that day. They will not be disappointed at the judgment. They will stand at the judgment. Listen to what Psalm 25.3 says about this. Indeed, listen to this. Take heart in this, Christian. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. God is so serious about the glory of his faithfulness. He will not let you be put to shame, you who hope in him, who cling to him, who with joy boast and glory and take confidence in him. And in the present, on this day and tomorrow and all the days to come, we are assured of this hope in our hearts. Now here's the thing. You may go through periods where you don't feel at peace with God, or you don't feel saved. There's all sorts of reasons for that. You can explore and pray and talk to Christian brothers and sisters. But here's the thing. For those of us who are true believers, we have been, and are being. Moment by moment, we may struggle, but we have been and are being assured. And if we're honest with ourselves, we will be able to quickly identify that assurance, that crying out of the Spirit within us, Abba, Father, that shows that we truly do belong to God. Those affections we have for Jesus Christ, that love we have for His Word, That desire to please Him, that hatred of our sin, all show the work of the Spirit in us. We are assured of this hope in our hearts by the love of God poured into us through the Holy Spirit. Do you see the the Trinity here? This is beautiful. By the way, you know people say, "Well, these uh, doctrine is unimportant." You know, we, we don't need that. I mean, the Trinity, I can't really explain the Trinity. It's really hard, so let's just move on once again. Let's just kind of go with this watered down you know, uh, relationship with Jesus. Let's get out there and tell other people kind of Christianity. I want you to see here that a doctrine no less weighty than the Trinity is all over this text. It is God through Christ pouring out the Spirit. You see that? The Father, the Son, And the Holy Spirit actively involved in saving us. Each person playing a role in our redemption. In our very hope. Our hope. The lived hope that we have from day to day. Our assurance that God loves us and he's not going to let us go. He's going to keep us. He's going to preserve us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Each person important. We don't just have an idea to hope in. Outside of us, objective realities that we assent to, we have a living hope. Fueled by the love of God in our very hearts. In the core of our existence as human beings, we have a a hope Fueled by love. Divine love. Triune love. And as John Chrysostom, the early church father, comments, speaking of Paul, he says, He does not say, given, but shed abroad in our hearts. So showing the profusion of it. It is not merely given, It is poured out into us. This is deep and abundant and abiding love. We will talk more about this love next week. But my prayer for us this morning is that we will recognize and live in these results. Our relationship with God through Christ and our rejoicing In hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it teaches us and encourages us. Lord, we thank you that these sufferings are just light and momentary afflictions. And they will be overcome by the eternal weight of glory. So might we rejoice this Christmas, not just in the superficial cheeriness of the season, though that is too a gift from you, but Lord, more deeply in the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, but even more deeply in that, the hope that we have being accumulated in our very sufferings. We pray, God, that you would edify us during this season with these truths and that your people gathered here today and who will listen online will take heart in these truths and live in accordance with them. Not. In accordance with mere feeling. Though feelings are important. Part of who we are as humans. But Lord. Building everything on your. Eternal truth. Which can never be shaken. We ask for this grace. In Jesus name. And Lord as we come now. To the Lord's Supper. This visual of the gospel. This visual of Christ given for us. For the forgiveness of sins. We pray that our hearts would be freshly committed to love Christ and serve Christ, that we would feel and experience His presence, that we would be drawn to love one another as we consider our peace with God and the effect that has horizontally here in this local church. Lord, in a season where there are many disagreements and lots of different opinions, we pray that the, the peace that we have with God through Christ, would show forth in the peace that your spirit gives among brothers and sisters in Christ who may have very different perceptions of things, but who nonetheless share that very same spirit. God, would you help us now with the Lord's Supper be a means to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.